invite you to turn in your Bible tonight to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. A few months ago, I suppose, I was reading an article by uh, Jeff, Reverend Jeff Thomas. He's a retired Welsh pastor. He served in the same church for 50 years and in Wales. And he was uh, just reflecting on his ministry and uh, talking about some of his regrets in ministry. And he said one of the things that he regretted was... Um, that he, he didn't like some, of, uh, some other pastors he knew, Martin Lloyd-Jones being one of them, uh, give Sunday evenings to dealing with the great texts of Scripture. Uh, texts like Psalm 23, Isaiah 55, come you are thirsty, come to the waters, you who have no money, come by. And um, uh, these memorable, concise, powerful uh, texts in Scripture that God has used in a, in a significant way in the lives of His people throughout the ages. And um, so one of the things uh, that I would like to do as uh, 2019 unfolds is from time to time in the evening services, just uh, look at the great texts of Scripture, a text that we should all know. Uh, and texts that um, God has used in a powerful way in the lives of His people over and over. And I think tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 might not seem to you to be a, such a text, but uh, there is, this is a concise packet of wonderful practical theology uh, concerning the ways of God, uh, the purposes of God in our lives, and I'm hoping it's a blessing to you. Let's give our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. <laughs> if you just notice the context, Paul is dealing here with uh, the false apostles, these super apostles, Men who were very gifted but not very godly, and they were causing disruption in the church, trying specifically to undermine Paul's own ministry. And uh, Paul then in chapter 12 is sort of uh, um, listing his credentials, but in a very unusual way. And Let's look at together at chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. Paul writes, I must go on boasting, <clears throat> though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, we pray that tonight, uh, Lord, you'd give us um, ears to receive uh, this wonderful truth about who you are and your ways in our life. And I pray, Lord God, that we would delight in your grace, the grace that preserves us, the grace, Lord, that um, makes our lives into displays of your goodness and power. We pray that we would find this to be sweet in Jesus' name. Amen. 
One of the greatest uh, struggles that uh, God's people have is uh, how to make sense or just to deal with and persevere through trial and pain and suffering. And it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. If the right trial uh, comes along that, that uh, is ongoing and, and heartbreaking, uh, you might find yourself asking the question, why? Uh, what, is, what is God doing? I just heard from an, an elderly saint recently just say, I don't understand uh, what God is doing here with tears in her eyes. And one of the things I love about 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is, is uh, the way Paul thinks about suffering, what he learns in suffering, the way, the, what, uh, uh, again, we get this chance to look through his eyes and see what he knows about God, what he believes about God, and, uh, and the promises that was given to him is a promise that God gives to all of us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that God's grace is sufficient. Uh, Paul is, uh, the, 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 I have two main points uh, tonight. The first is the grace of supernatural revelation, and the second is the grace of supernatural preservation. Uh, the grace of supernatural revelation and then supernatural preservation. Uh, Paul begins by uh, talking about this gift that was given to him of a uh, super, supernatural revelation. He's, as I said, he's writing to the church in Corinth, and Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth was, uh, it was complicated. Of all the churches that uh, Paul was involved with that started, it, it most likely the church of Corinth gave him the most heartburn. Uh, some scholars think that there were at least four letters that were written to the church in Corinth, two of them having been uh, inspired and preserved. Uh, but Paul uh, is dealing here in chapter 12 with this issue of these super apostles, these very gifted men, but men who were undermining Paul's uh, position as, the, as an apostle, as a leader, as a, a spokesperson, someone who'd been called by God to, uh, to build up the church. And, and so Paul here is he's writing in defense of himself, in defense of his apostolic ministry given to him by God, in defense of his ministerial credentials, but he does this in the most unusual way. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't list his great strengths. He could do that. He could talk about um, his his great learning. He was a very, very learned and wise man. He could talk about the many, many converts that had uh, people who had come to Christ under his ministry. He could talk about miracles he had performed. And he could challenge the super apostles, show me yours. He could uh, talk about uh, his, his masterful skills in debate. Uh, we read in the Bible in different places where Paul would be debating with the Jews and they finally just gave up. They, they couldn't answer him. But Paul doesn't list any of his strengths in defense of his ministry. What he does is list his weakness. And he does so by telling a story. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven and he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. utter. Uh, there's a lot of mystery in these words. Paul doesn't give us much detail, but it's clear he's talking about himself. Um, this man who's been caught up uh, into paradise. Uh, Paul had apparently been given some uh, magnificent revelation of Jesus Christ in his glory, on his throne, surrounded by angels. We don't know all that he saw. Paul doesn't, he doesn't tell us. In fact, Paul says, I can't tell you. I cannot and I may not. Um, 
may not, uh, apparently, he was forbidden from speaking of these things, from, from revealing these things. Jesus, remember, would sometimes say to his disciples, when they would say, you're, you know, you're the Christ, and, and Jesus would warn them, don't be telling people that right now, and because his hour had not yet come. It wasn't time for that to be revealed. And apparently, Paul says, uh, may not, because it was not time for these things uh, to be revealed. But he also says, cannot. Things about which men cannot speak. And I think what he means here is that the things that he saw are simply beyond human language. The glory of heaven we know is beyond anything that we can imagine. Our minds simply can't conceive of it. Well, if we can't conceive of it, how much more then are we unable to speak of it? You all know that human language has limitations. If you've ever tried to describe something that was really spectacular, maybe uh, if, if you've tried to describe the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen, there's no point even beginning. You, you simply cannot find the words in the right combination to recreate the glory of that scene. The, uh, I've, I've tried to explain to people what it was like when we were uh, about 18, a year and a half ago now in southern France, Joanne and I, and, and we were at uh, the Pont du Gard, this magnificent Roman um, aqueduct that's still standing there, uh, was built in the days of Christ. Um, about a hundred and, or I don't know, how, it's very, 170 feet tall maybe? Uh, very long, and there's a river that runs under, and we were there at dusk, a perfect evening when, when you know, the mist is sort of rising, and everything's perfectly still, and the sun is setting, uh, and they're in the presence of this majestic old aqueduct, and I could go on for a half hour, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know what it felt like and tasted and smelled like. It's not possible to describe it. Well, if that's true of things that we just experience and see, how much more are the glories of Jesus how would you begin to tell people what that was like? Paul says, I cannot. So here he has this, this experience of divine, supernatural revelation. Something that we would all love to experience. Paul is taken behind the veil that lies between this world and the world to come. And he sees Jesus in his glory. I would love to have that experience. That supernatural revelation, I'm sure you would as well. But there's another supernatural uh, act that Paul experiences here, something that we do experience, and it's just as miraculous and just as glorious, just as full of God, and that is the, the grace of supernatural preservation. And so Paul writes, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Notice Paul mentions that twice, to keep me from becoming conceited. There was a danger and a temptation in the revelation, which is very interesting. God has given Paul this revelation, and, and God did so knowing that there would be a temptation in that experience for the apostle Paul. It could lead him to conceit, could lead him to pride. Uh, the blessing of God's revelation always carries that danger. If you think about the Old Testament, which, uh, who in the Old Testament were the most blessed people when it came to divine revelation? It was the Israelites. Theirs was the law. Theirs uh, were the prophets. They had the revelation of God as no one else did. And what did it do to them? Well, it made them proud. In fact, they would look down on their neighbors and, and, and call them freely Gentile dogs. 
a people who did not have the revelation of God. It made them proud. And so they boasted in their privilege and actually become a stumbling block to God's mission in the world where Paul will say in Romans 2 verse 24 that Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you, the Jews. Their arrogance and their pride was so offensive that Gentiles, uh, even if you told them about the glory of God, would say, well, if the glory of God and the revelation of God produces that, I want nothing to do with it. And of course, the same thing happens today. I was reading just recently an article about a Tolstoy, Russian author, who uh, was wrestling with uh, the meaninglessness of life in the face of death and realizing that religion was the only possible solution. And yet, as he looked at the religion that he knew, the Christian religion, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, he just decided, even if that's true, I'm not going there. It was so offensive to him. What happens even in our community it's not uncommon for christians to feel superior we've revealed we've received divine truth uh, god has opened our eyes to see spiritual principles to see things the way they are to understand how things are supposed to work and we can easily feel morally superior and intellectually enlightened and people in our community do blaspheme the name of god because of the arrogance of god's people it's a tragic reality and so you see danger, that pride is dangerous both because it endangers our soul. God opposes the proud. Proud people will not enter, inherit the kingdom of God. And it undermines the mission of God. It's an obstacle to people to come to faith when they see arrogant people who say they believe. But this... Uh, expresses the, the wonderful reality of God's cure is that God's cure both preserves our soul and carries on the mission. And that's what we're going to see as Paul talks about God's grace to him, God's preserving grace. He talks, he says, to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh. I'm going to ask just a couple questions about that thorn tonight. We're going to ask, uh, what is it and who gave it and what was its purpose and what was Paul's response? So first, what is the thorn? <clears throat> Secondly, who gave the thorn? Third, what is the purpose of the thorn? And then finally, what was Paul's response? Well, first, what was the thorn? Bible scholars have uh, long debated that, and the reason they've long debated it is because Paul doesn't tell us the exact nature of the thorn. Um, so we don't know exactly. It, it's clearly a metaphorical reference to something that was painful. The, the, the word means a, a pointed stake. It's something that was painful either in his body or in his, in his, in his life, in his, in his soul, his experience somehow. So um, one author says some of the more popular theories uh, concerning the thorn include uh, an ongoing temptation, or a chronic eye problem. Paul speaks about it. He has difficulty with, uh, with writing. Uh, malaria, migraines, epilepsy, speech disability. Some even say the thorn refers to a person, such as Alexander the coppersmith, who did Paul a great deal of harm. We read that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, no one can say for sure what the thorn in this flesh was, but it was a source of real pain in the apostle's life. The fact that Paul does not tell us what it, the exact nature of the thorn is very helpful because the Lord uses many different sorts of thorns in the lives of his people. Some of you are suffering from physical pain. 
that's been chronic, lingering. Some of you suffer with an illness that weakens you. Some of you are suffering from ongoing uh, painful, broken relationships, maybe a hard marriage, maybe a wandering child, maybe a, a broken marriage. Others experience strong temptations and addictions. There's, there's all sorts of uh, different thorns, painful things that we experience in our life. And that's what Paul experienced. This is painful, it's chronic, and it's unwanted. He pleads with the Lord three times to remove it from him. Some of you um, can relate. Well, where did the thorn come from? Well, it's very interesting. Paul says a thorn was given to me. Didn't just happen. And it was given to him by God in some way through the agency of demons. So a thorn was given me, I believe, by God in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. The word harass means to beat, strike with fists. So, so there's something in Paul's life that's, that's beating up on him. And, and Paul identifies it as a thorn given by God. Um, and why would we say by God? Well, because just quickly, the purpose is to keep me from becoming conceited. Uh, that is not something the devil would be uh, eager to, to see happen. Right? The devil is not going to bring a thorn so Paul doesn't become conceited. The devil, what he would love to see is Paul becoming proud and conceited so that he would be rendered useless. But, but God has brought this thorn, and, and that's a truth we just need to remember. Most evangelical Americans, um, Christians, are convinced that God would, would never cause a thorn, that, that God maybe would allow a thorn because he knows it's going to accomplish some future good, but God would never ordain it. He would never be the cause of it, uh, that the devil is the one who's actually the cause. That's just not how Paul thinks. He clearly believes that God has given this thorn to him through the agency, in some way, of Satan. It's a messenger of Satan. And here we just see Paul's um, understanding and conviction concerning the ways of God. Paul believes that God ordains difficult and even evil things in the lives of his children to accomplish great good. Why would Paul think that? Well, because Paul knows his Bible, and he remembers the stories of Job and Joshua, uh, Joseph, excuse me, where, uh, remember, Job is, uh, the, the devil has a, a, a shot at him, and, and the devil's convinced that if, if, uh, if God would let uh, would take everything away from Job, all the gifts that Job would curse God. And, well, he doesn't curse God. God's accomplishing a good through the devil's purposes. Uh, 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 Joseph, the great story where in Genesis 50, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Uh, we, we, Jesus is the best example of this, of course, where uh, the devil, we're told, enters into the heart of Judas, and the devil's at work inciting the crowds to, to cry out for the death of Jesus. Um, we can talk about the devil's agency in the death of Christ, and yet, what was the result of that? The result is that uh, what God had ordained must happen, happened, and in that, the devil is defeated. Colossians 2.15, he, that is God, disarmed the satanic rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, Jesus. So here's the truth for us to remember. That whatever evil God is ordaining in your life or allowing in your life, 
whatever thing you can point to and say, that is wrong, that's wicked, it's not right, you can be absolutely certain that God is ordaining and allowing that evil to thwart the devil and accomplish his sovereign saving purposes. Whatever God is ordaining that is evil and wrong in your life, he's allowing to thwart the devil and accomplish his sovereign saving purposes. Take just the, the issue of persecution. So the church in China is coming under increasing persecution. Pastors and members are in jail tonight. Now why would the church, why would the government persecute the, the church in China? And why would specifically would they take the leaders? Because they believe that if they threaten the church, if they, if they um, make it difficult to be a Christian, that, that people in China will get the message and stop being Christians. Is that what's happening? Of course that's not what's happening. The more the devil uh, persecutes and attacks the church and does this wicked thing, the more um, God's people stand in their faith, willing to die for Christ, and, and the watching world notices, what in the world can it be that makes these people, my neighbor, willing to suffer and go to jail and even die? Who do they know? Who is this Jesus? And the, and the church expands. That's how it always works. And so the, the question that we want to ask tonight is, what was the good that God intended by this evil, by this thorn? What was the good intended? And there are two answers to that. The first is the good of sanctification. Paul says that clearly, to keep me from becoming conceited. So the good is the good of humility. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God delights in humility. He, he must work humility in our lives if he's going to do saving good in our lives. No one gets to heaven through pride or with pride. God must bring humility, right, into the reality of our lives. And so this is God at work in the supernatural grace of preservation, but it it doesn't usually feel like preservation. The destroying of pride, as you well know, almost always feels like shame and humiliation and weakness. Now John Bloom wrote an article on this on Desiring God website, and he writes this. He goes, just like Paul's, our thorns weaken us. Sometimes they are visible to others, often they are hidden from public view, known only to those who know us best, but they are never heroic, never romantic. They almost always humble us in embarrassing rather than noble ways. They not only seem to impede our effectiveness and fruitfulness, but all, they also are more likely to detract from rather than enhance our reputation." Which is why we, like Paul, plead with God to remove them. But this is the way our thorns have to be. Because if they were noble and heroic, if they enhanced our reputations, they would be of no help at all in guarding us from our pervasive pride. But when you are being humiliated, when your reputation is, uh, when you're just sort of being exposed, and your reputation is taking a beating... When's the last time you thought, this is so good for me? I love this. We plead, Lord, preserve and, and, and protect me and, and, and drive the evil away. This, this thorn is killing me. And, and, and God says, yes, I know. It's killing our pride. 
Well, what is Paul's response to God's good agenda? Well, he tells us. First, he pleaded with God to remove it, which is exactly what we do. Three times I pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me. Pain is hard. Weakness is debilitating. Sorrow saps our strength. Temptation robs us of joy and peace and assurance. And so we ask God. We believe that God is good. We believe what the Bible says. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will answer you. I will deliver you. And we take that promise and we go to God and we, and we ask him. Isn't, isn't that exactly what you do with your thorn? Asking God to take away the temptation Take away the physical pain, remove the crushing sorrow, the darkening depression. Of course that's what we do, and it's right that we do. It's good that we do this. God delights in those prayers as we appeal to his mercy and, and his sovereign power. But what happens when God says no? What happens when God does not deliver us from the trouble? And he doesn't remove the thorn. Do you realize what a critical moment that is in the life of God's children? Because you will be tempted in that moment to grumble and complain against God. And you'll even have Christian uh, counselors or friends who, who, who tell you, just vent your anger with God. God can handle it. Well, of course God can handle it. What in the world could specks of dust like us do that God couldn't handle it? But that utterly misses the point. Is that, is that the best we have? And, and, and I'm not saying there's, it's, it's inappropriate to lament. The Bible's full of laments. But Paul doesn't lament. He doesn't lament. Why not? Because God did not just say No. To the, removing the thorn, God said yes to something better than removal of the thorn. Verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. It is such a profound truth. My grace is sufficient for you means that all that Paul needs for life and godliness, all that Paul needs for faith and fruitfulness He has in abundance in Christ. There's nothing lacking from his life for faith, for life, for godliness, for fruitfulness. Everything he needs for those things, he has. No matter how painful or embarrassing or debilitating the thorn might be, it is no match for the persistent, overcoming, superabounding grace of God to us in Jesus Christ. Or God wouldn't have given the thorn. But there's something more here that we can't miss. So when, when Jesus says, my grace is sufficient, my power is made perfect in weakness, he wants us to see that not only is his grace sufficient for the preserving of Paul as God humbles Paul and sanctifies Paul, not only is the grace sufficient for Paul's need to be sanctified, but the grace is sufficient for God's need for Jesus to be glorified and for Jesus to be magnified. There are two goals that God is pursuing, the sanctification of the Apostle Paul and the magnification of Jesus Christ. In some sense, this isn't even about Paul. It's about Jesus. 
It's what Jesus says in John chapter 11 when Lazarus, his friend, dies. And Jesus says in in verse 4, this happened, it's for the glory of God so that the Son may be be magnified in it. It's, It's in some sense not about Lazarus. It's not about Mary and Martha. Even though they're going to experience the pain, the ultimate end of this, the goal, the purpose of this, is the glory of God that the Son may be magnified. And so the weakness caused by the thorn is like the death of Lazarus, the canvas upon which Jesus will manifest the glory of his power. Weakness is the context in which power is seen to be power. Weakness is the dust out of which God is going to mold a vessel to display his glory. Jesus, you see, gave Paul the thorn so that Paul's life, his pain-filled life, would be a tapestry through which Jesus weaves the glory of his power and his grace, his mercy. It's to make Jesus look good. That's the purpose of the thorn. And that's why Paul rejoices. Verse 9, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. These words are bursting with joy. The thorn is still there. And yet Paul speaks here all the more gladly. It's one word in the Greek. It's the superlative of pleasure. It gives me the greatest of pleasure. This weakness of mine. Because because in the weakness, the power of Jesus rests on me. And for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. The word content here, it's it's, uh, um, the same word that God uses when he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So Paul, he's bursting with joy. Now, how is that possible? Let's just be real. Think about the thorns that God has placed in your life, and some of you maybe feel like you're wearing a crown of thorns. And we, we hope at best to endure it and, and, and still have our faith at the other end of it. But Paul rejoices. How could he be pleased with a painful, chronic thorn? And the only way it's possible, you see, is is to be able to believe that God intends our lives for something grander and more glorious than the absence of pain. We have to be able to believe that God intends our life for something grander and more glorious than the absence of pain. The only way it's possible to rejoice in the context of thorns is if we believe that God in his preserving grace is using our lives, specifically our weakness and suffering, to manifest the glory and power and grace of Jesus and that's what we treasure more than anything. We have to, we have to treasure the magnifying of Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Which testimony more honored the grace of God, that of the publican or the Pharisee? Remember the the Pharisee came and said, uh, came to the temple and I thank God that I'm not like other men. I tithe and fast and 
I'm not like these sinners. And then the other man, the, public, the tax collector, he could not even lift his eyes, but, but with eyes bowed down and full of misery, beats his breast and cries out, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. So which testimony was more honoring to God? Which, which testimony made God look gracious and glorious and good? And, and the answer, of course, it's the testimony of, of the publican. The Pharisee's testimony wasn't about God at all. It was about him. But the testimony of the, of, the, of the publican, in his need, in his sin, as he cries out for mercy, well, that, that is the stuff out of which God is going to display the glory of his grace. And that's exactly how it happens in our lives. As I think about the thorns that God has given to me in my life, the things that I've begged God to take away, pleaded with God to remove, because it's weakening and it's shaming and embarrassing, it's humiliating. Well, you look back over the years and you see, yeah, that was, that was the point. I was an arrogant, cocky, confident young man who could have caused a great deal of damage and still am capable if God had just let me run in my strengths and my abilities and not reveal to me in the most painful, shameful ways the reality of my weakness and need. You see, the grace and the power of God goes on display when he takes the stuff of our weakness, not our strengths, to reveal his grace and his power. It's the same for me, it's the same for you. Your weakness is the stuff that God uses to display his power, his goodness, his grace. It's precisely in the arena of the pain that God is painting the truth of his glory. And when, when we're in heaven, you see, it's not, it's not going to be, what we'll, what we'll rejoice in will not be how pain-free our life was. It's not, we're not going to be walking around heaven high-fiving each other. I managed to get through with almost no pain. What's going to matter to you in heaven is, is that in some way God used your puny little life to magnify the glory of Jesus. It's the only thing that will matter. Nothing else will come close. You won't be talking about your great romances. You won't be talking about the wonderful career that you had. You won't be talking about your fantastic family. You'll give thanks to God for all those things, but those won't be the things that most thrill you. Those won't be the primary reasons that you're rejoicing. The primary reason you'll be rejoicing is, that, is, is because you are completely in awe that God was willing and able to use the weak stuff of your life in some way to make Jesus look marvelous and glorious and good. He uses the pain. The question is, are we okay with that? Are you okay with being weak? so that Jesus looks strong? Are you, are you okay with being needy and being in sorrow and being in pain so that out of the stuff of your thorn, Jesus can say something wonderful about his sufficient power, his sufficient grace? You see, how we deal with the thorn relates to how we think about God, what we believe about God. Is he good? Is he after a good purpose? And how we value the goal of God, our sanctification and the magnifying of Jesus. And as we move forward in our life, as we experience the thorns God brings, let's pray then for Paul's perspective. 
this rich perspective of a sovereign God who, who knows exactly what he's doing, who who's, who's rules over the devil in order to thwart the devil, and the God who's able to take the stuff of our life, the weakness of our life, to make Jesus look great. May God give us that gift. Amen. Well, God in heaven, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the power and the goodness and greatness of God. I thank you, Lord, for our brother, the apostle, and for the ability that we have to see through his eyes. Father, I pray for those who are hurting tonight. I thank you, Lord, that your pain matters to you, that our pain matters to you, that you are a comforter. But, oh, God, I thank you that you are also a master, skilled artist, and you know exactly how best to preserve us, and you know exactly how to use our lives to further your cause, to glorify your Son. And Father, I thank you that you're willing to do it in our life, in our context today. We give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond with the hymn, Good Shepherd of My Soul, Come Dwell Within Me. Yes, sir.